0: what it means to be one of the sector's critically important, yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Tony. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I just did about five minutes worth of catching up. We, we, uh, I think we, I think we started the conversation thinking we were strangers, but you've had me over on your podcast about two or three we figured out about two or three years ago and uh so i'm delighted to uh to once again be reunited and uh and to host you here on the fundraising talent podcast um tony i've been listening to your podcast for quite some time very grateful for the work that you've done i'm sure that'll come up in our conversation for folks who don't know who you are tony how about we just ask you to quickly introduce yourself to our listeners
2: jason a pleasure to be with you thank you very much I. I did have you on uh, about two years ago, three. Pardon me, about three years ago, uh, almost to the day. Uh, and uh, frankly, I've been waiting ever since. Uh, you know, I don't know where you've been with your invitation. Slow, <laughs> slow, slow to come, I'd say, but uh, happy to uh, happy to be with you. I am a planned giving consultant. I used to be a lawyer, but I hated that. Found it to be a very unpleasant way to make a lot of money. That was many years ago, in the 1990s. I have a much happier life in planned giving. I've been a frontline planned giving fundraiser, so a director of planned giving. Um, I've been, and now I'm a consultant. I've been a consultant since 2003. Uh, my total time in planned giving, this is my 25th year. I think that's the gold. Is 25th the gold? No, silver. 25th so. I started 1997. I started, and uh, I have now uh, evolved to uh, planned giving accelerator which is teaching planned giving in an online community.
1: So Tony, I have to uh you know you do this and you you you, you do this as well so you do a lot of recording so you listen for those big words. So when a guy says he hated something. So what what I what I'm particularly interested in, before we dive into our big topic of the day um So you hated law, you hated the, the, you know, you were professionally trained as an attorney, uh, you hated it. And apparently you've fallen in love very evidently by your, your tenure in the, in the fundraising space, you've fallen in love with fundraising. So what is it about? And I think I've heard, I honestly, I, I think I could put, I think I could put at least a dozen names on a, on a note card if I needed to of people who very similarly found law to be uh not what they thought it was going to be. And interestingly, they landed in fundraising. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, I don't know for others. Uh, I know for me, why, well, first you, why, you asked why I hated uh, practicing law. Oh my gosh, all the partners were miserable. They were all divorced <laughs> from their husbands and wives. They did, they had children who did, they didn't know, or they yeah. knew their children, but their children hated them. Yeah. And, you know, so that's not, so partnership is not something I aspired to.
0: It's yeah. something
2: I was dreading. Yeah. And then uh, add to that the uh, challenges of practicing law in, a, in New York City where a lot of judges don't don't uh, take the principled stands that I think they should. And I don't mean that they ruled against you know, my side in the cases that I was doing. And remember, I was, a, I was a junior associate. That's as far as I ever got. I only practiced yeah. law for two years. So I don't mean that they ruled against my, or our clients, that's not what I mean, Just that they wouldn't take a stand on cases or, or, uh, encourage settlement, you know, they were just very laid back. And I look laid back as being polite. I think, uh, lazy, uh, lazy yeah. judiciary, uh, in, in New York city, I believe. And this is all state courts. I'm not talking, I didn't practice in federal court. So, so as is all the state court judges. Uh, so Not wanting to advance in my own career and not thinking much of the judges who uh, I had to practice before, Uh, I left it only two years. And then I re-engineered myself into planned giving fundraising and specifically that because there is a legal side to it. Uh, it, uh, Through the years, I've learned that that legal component is very small, like one half of one percent, maybe. So... 99.5% 99.5% of planned giving has nothing to do with the law. Maybe it's 99%. Maybe it's 1% law. But you could be enormously successful in planned giving and not have a law degree. Uh, but uh, early on, I leveraged the, uh, the legal side of planned giving and re-engineered myself to be uh, uh, to get hired as a director of planned giving.
1: I, I, I really appreciate that. that that. that... Cause, because I don't know that I've ever heard it put that way, but that the idea that fundraising, because I think a lot of us have, uh, any of us who have been in the in this work for a couple of decades would say that it's sort of in a lot of ways allowed us to sort of re-engineer, reinvent ourselves, perhaps away from the dissatisfaction that we found in some other line of work. So, um, Tony, we always ask our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion related to fundraising we don't ask that they necessarily disclose it. Um And we just sort of let the conversation go from there. So what do you got for us today?
2: Well, if I don't disclose it, how are we going to continue? we wrap it up right now. If I don't do, don't. Of course I'm going to disclose it. We don't, we
1: don't. It. <laughs> we don't require that you just close it ahead of time to me, so I don't get the benefit of. Oh, uh, I don't get the benefit of prepping ahead of time, uh, so that I, you know, so some some of my guests have actually put me on the spot with a topic that I was not necessarily as comfortable or ready for. So, um, what uh, do you got for us? Well, it's planned giving.
2: Uh, I want to uh, defeat the insidious myth, and my uh, bold assertion is that planned giving. Is not a death conversation. So you are not talking to your donors about their death. Uh, that's a, 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 uh, a, a um, well insidious myth is good. I was trying to find a, think of a synonym for insidious. That's a uh, unfortunate and dangerous myth that pervades planned giving that that people think they're talking to their donors about. The donor's death. And of course, nobody wants to talk about death. So nonprofits are, uh, you know, forego planned giving, bypass planned giving because they don't want to talk to people about death.
1: What happened with that, with that being the topic of discussion, Tony, what happened or perhaps did something happen around the turn of the century, right? Before, so I started fundraising right around the, you know, we all know the marker, September 11th. That was sort of the big marker on when I began my fundraising career was around that same time. I remember those first, say, five years, planned giving being a regular topic of discussion. It was sort of part of that sort of package of skills and awareness you know it was those things that you had to know it was it was plan giving it was direct mail it was planning special events but i got to say sometime i guess around the time of the recession and every se- ever ever since then plan giving seems to almost have sort of faded to the background is there a particular reason why that might be in my case or have you noticed that to be true as well
2: well i've always been Talking about planned giving, um, I, I've been doing it since 1997. Yeah, um, I, I can't say that I, I saw it recede. Uh, there, there have been well, not over over a long time. I mean, there have been times when it was inappropriate to talk about planned giving. Yeah. Mean, you don't have to go back. You don't have to go back to September 2001 for that. Just uh, the the pandemic. You know, in the early months of the pandemic, the first four to six months or so of the pandemic. I was still talking to uh, potential donors, to, to the client charities that that I work with, but yeah. I certainly wasn't soliciting the idea of include us in your will. We were all afraid we were gonna die. People didn't know what, what the future held. So I was yeah. doing a lot of listening to folks. So yeah. I was still keeping in touch with donors and potential donors, definitely. But it was all listening and, and there was any solicitations, uh, any mail campaigns that we might've had planned or, or other campaigns uh, were, were canceled and postponed until at least four months, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic. So there are times in history when uh, people are uh, concerned about their own mortality a lot more right. than, than in the usual course of one day, week, month, right? Uh, and like I said, the pandemic is a perfect example of that. But then in November of 2020, so the pandemic started in March, or at least, well, the the, the global pandemic really started in December, January of uh, 2019, 2020. Uh, But in terms of shutting down the United States, that was mid-March, March March 15, March 20, somewhere around there. Uh, But in November of 2020, Martin Lundy had a study that uh, said 62% of, no, maybe it was 72. I think it was 72% of charities that they had surveyed had seen an increased interest in planned giving by donors and potential donors. So not that the charities had increased their interest, but that the donors, that the charities who were surveyed had increased the, the interest in talking about planned giving. Why? Because, right. Okay. So the first four to six months of the pandemic, we're, we're all afraid we're going to die. And, you know, it, it might happen much sooner than we're all afraid we're going to die soon. All right. So things rolled out and we realized that it's not a, it, it's, it, it's not so transmissible that it's a death sentence for everybody. It certainly was very bad for a lot of people who, who were especially elderly or medically compromised. You know, we, we remember the, the hospitalizations and the, and the deaths around that, but, as, as most of the population became comfortable with it, they were still uh, in sort of a heightened state of you know being concerned about their own mortality, but not that they were going to die imminently. What that concern led them to was revising or doing their first estate planning. And that conveyed to including charities in those estate plans. So November of 2020, Martin Lundley showed a 72% increase in, in interest of uh, planned giving discussions among donors to the charities that they surveyed.
1: So so one of the things that we've talked about consistently here on the podcast, Tony, is the idea, like, I, I, I made a suggestion here, I, I don't know, 25, we'll, we'll say it's 25 episodes back, that 80% of the fundraisers out there because of the nature in which, sort of the, because of the way in which they've been trained up to do the work. Um, very much in accordance with the term uh, in that, in that first, in the first book that I wrote, I, I talked about this notion of arm's length fundraising, that there was, there was this increasing sort of wide gap between the, essentially the donor and the, the, the donor and the fundraiser using these various different extensions with which to communicate that sort of serve as intermediaries. But there wasn't a lot of direct interaction, and I just wonder if, if today, like, how many fundraisers are even out there? In your mind, how many fundraisers are even out there right now that are ready to have these types of conversations, whether it, to, to, to the extent that it's about death or not? Uh, it, you know, I, I just don't know how many people are actually out there doing it. And I, I mean, I, te- I see it terribly terribly unfortunate. I think back, I think back on the first fundraising job I had, a small children's home in the southwest corner of Virginia, and we had a pretty robust, comprehensive program that was built in the, you know, 60s and 70s. And and we were steadily the beneficiaries of planned gifts that had been established in the, you know, 70s and 80s. Um, and so as I was running the overall program doing the myriad of different things that the Sort of these solo solo shops do. Um, we were oftentimes receiving these planned gifts that somebody else had sort of helped orchestrate year, you know, years if not decades earlier. But I just I just don't know if I see that. It's very interesting, as I pointed out before we hit the record button. We just haven't had planned giving type conversations here on the podcast, and I kind of wonder why that might be.
2: Well, I hate to say that it's the host's fault. Uh, I don't wanna, I wanna <laughs> it could be I don't, yeah. lay that, I don't wanna lay that on you but so I'm here to uh help you turn that around uh no there well, we we we
1: like i like i said i mean we 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 we've had three hundred plus conversations i i you know this this episode is probably airing at about three twenty five we always let our fundraisers come on and they they initiate that conversation so they're the ones who sort of get to put that subject on the table and um and, and, and that's right. just not a subject Nobody, that they've opted to do. Nobody's been doing it for you. All right. Well, I'm yeah. here to
2: change that. I'm here to change that trend. Uh, make a uh, be the first data point of a new trend. When you're going to talk about planned giving every five episodes, right? <laughs> right. And I'll, I'll just I'll just keep coming back. So i right. will talk in another two weeks or so, and then we'll talk two weeks after that. Uh, yeah, there aren't enough fundraisers talking about planned giving. There aren't enough fundraisers comfortable with planned giving. Right. That's why I'm the evangelist of planned giving. I'm trying to spread the word. And one of the words I'm spreading uh, is that planned giving is not a death conversation. So what is it? It's a conversation about life, about the life and sustainability of your nonprofit. It's about the importance to your community, however you define community. It might be your little local community, might be county, state, nation, might be the globe, might be your community. However you define community, what's your community going to look like if your work ceases to exist 15, 20, 25 years from now? Well, the planned gift that you're talking to your donors about is intended to prevent that ugly future from ever happening where, you're, where, where your work ceases. So we're talking about, you're talking to your donors and potential donors about the life, the sustainability of your work, and how important that is to your community. So that's what the conversation is. It's not about your donor's death. It's about your nonprofit's life. Is there a
1: point? We do a lot of coaching in our consultancy, and there's a, we talk about the initial gift and the subsequent gift, and 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 they're not of any. We're not making any reference to size. We're not making any. We're not putting any particular symbolism or meaning behind any one of them. But but what we're doing is is we're we're trying to get our clients to sort of differentiate between what the what the initial gift experience typically is for the donor versus what the subsequent gift experience sort of looks like. And 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 oftentimes ta- oftentimes we're also trying to um, we're always trying to get it's not often we're always trying to get our clients to sort of see and understand that there's a there's sort of a change in the nature of the relationship that happens between these two gifts. Um, and in my consistent critique, which I'm interested to sort of hear if, if this is part of the reason why perhaps planned giving doesn't come up as much as perhaps it should is because I don't think our profession, and I think our profession has lost it. I would say that we've lost it. We've lost an appreciation and a know-how or a commitment of having to even knowing how to get to that subsequent gift. We don't know how to get with our donors to have those conversations that follow, you know, we're all fanatical and fascinated with what we can do on giving Tuesday, but we don't understand there's a whole hell of a lot of work that has to come after giving Tuesday. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, your, your, your planned giving donors are not going to be uh you know you're They're not you're, right. You're, you're one-time donors, no. and then you solicit them for a planned gift. When you're right. talking to the right people about a planned gift, you're talking to folks who are uh, roughly fifty-five to sixty and over. But more importantly, because a lot of databases don't have age, more importantly, loyal, committed donors—folks who have been giving to you for ten, twenty years, maybe thirty years—in some some cases, long-standing nonprofits—and they've been making. At least one gift and lots of, lots of times it's multiple gifts over those 10, 20, 30 years, uh, each year, multiple gifts each year. So you're talking to donors who are loyal to your work, committed to your work. And the, uh, the gift, the, the planned gift that I like to talk about and that I teach in the planned giving accelerator is the very simple gift by will. So when you're asking someone who's a committed, loyal donor, the way I was just describing, about including you in their will, you're talking to them about a natural extension of the giving that they've been doing for all those years, and and in some cases decades. just a natural extension because they're so committed. They're a great prospect for including you in their will.
1: Tony, there's two things that come to. I'm I'm sitting here and I'm I'm, I'm going back to, uh, you know, thinking back through my own. While I was working for the charitable organizations that I did, there were two sort of consistent, I don't know, points of resistance, I guess you could say the first the first one was the first one was and I'm interested how this sort of factors into your um, into the training program that you have. I think the first point of resistance and I don't know that it was necessarily articulated expressed but it was the idea that plan giving was a technical expertise that it was it was all about the science it was all about the you know it it, it required an attorney in the room it required tax law it required all these sorts of things and and I think over the over the lifetime of my career And I think about some of the planned gifts that I was able to negotiate, for example, with the health charity when I was in Washington, didn't involve a lot of technical details. You know, there was certainly a negotiation point around some of those specifics. There was usually always somebody on our side and their side of the table that was involved in that process, usually people who didn't even necessarily interact with the negotiation process that I was doing directly with the donor. But what is it about the... Oh, is there an over assumption, if that's even the right way to put it, that this is all technical work?
2: Yes, that's another of the insidious myths around planned right. giving that, <laughs> okay. it, that it's that it's too technical. It's a black box. It's all law. I don't. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. We don't have a lawyer on our board. I don't want to yeah. hire a consultant. Uh, so we're not. we Again, we're going to not do planned giving. We're just going to avoid it. Another detrimental myth to planned giving. The way I teach planned giving in planned giving accelerator is you start with the, the low hanging fruit, the most basic and, and very importantly, by far the most popular planned gift. Yeah. And that is a gift by will. So you're asking folks that you're talking to your donors that alongside their husbands, their wives, their children and their grandchildren, they're going to include a gift to your nonprofit, simple gifts by will. Jason, why do you not need a lawyer to talk to folks about gifts by will? Because everybody knows what a will is. Yeah. Everybody knows how a will works and everybody knows they need a will. No technical expertise required. That's the gift that I focus on in the six month plan giving accelerator course. That's the place to start your planned giving program. That's the low-hanging fruit, and as I said, most popular planned gift by far. Name any planned giving program in the country, Uh, the biggest ones. Well, uh, you're in Pennsylvania, so what's the biggest one in University of Pennsylvania system, perhaps?
1: Sure.
2: Uh, Name me Stanford. Name me uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. Name me the University of Texas system. Name me Harvard University. 75%, seventy five percent at least seventy five percent of the, of all their planned gifts are very simple gifts by will. And in a lot of programs it can go as high as ninety percent. yeah, they are by far the most popular planned gift, so that makes simple gifts by will, charitable bequest the place to start your plan giving program. That's what I focus on in Plan giving accelerator. and for that reason, you don't need technical expertise. As I said, that's another insidious myth. You don't have to have, a, a, certainly don't have to have a law degree, but I had said that early on. You don't have to have technical expertise to launch a planned giving program.
1: Okay, so we're kind of ha- we're kind of almost like playing a game here because I have a guess. I, <laughs> I have a guess what the next insidious myth is, and 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 I think I figured this out. Because for for as few conversations as we've had here on the podcast about planned giving, I have to say that I probably am probably one of the most, I I am certainly one of the biggest advocates for it in the sense that I remember somewhere, I don't know, 10 years into my fundraising career, realizing that negotiating a planned gift and negotiating a scenario like you're describing does not interfere with the donor's willingness to give current giving. I, there was a point at which I'm, I, I think, I think again, I think this was while I was at the epilepsy foundation. I was negotiating a, a, you know, a bequest type scenario, but it didn't necessarily interfere with this donor's willingness to like write a check today that we could go and pay for the operations with. But I remember thinking at some point, and I'm sort of again, I'm stirring up my memories here of my own professional development, I guess you could say. Um, I have to imagine that's probably another one of those points of resistance is that people think, shoot, if I'm negotiating this gift that's way out in the future, I'm not going to have my bases covered for what I need to pay for today.
2: That's another of the insidious myths. You are right on that it's going to hurt our other fundraising. Right. Quite the contrary. Yeah. It often increases the other fundraising from from donors who have included you in their will. Yeah. Why? Because they feel so close to the organization that they want to give more now. So close that they've put the organization alongside their husband. Your donor put the organization alongside her husband, her her children and her grandchildren. That's how much she loves your work. She's going to increase her giving. Now, and I've seen that many, many thousands of times. Over twenty-five years in planned giving. Now you might say, Ah, Tony Martinetti, the evangelist. He's got twenty-five years worth of anecdotes. Well, what what is that? Nothing, nothing. All anecdotal. (laughs) Okay, you don't have to take my twenty-five years worth of anecdotes. It's been studied quantitatively. I would refer folks to Professor Russell James at Texas Tech University. He's a professor there. He studies planned giving fundraising. He has quantitative research that has shown that many, many, uh, a a large percentage of people, I don't want to cite the percentage because I can't remember it, um, but well over 50% of the planned gifts that he studied, the, uh, the donors increased their other forms of giving to that same charity that they had just informed that the charity is in their will. So I've got 25 years of anecdotes. And yeah, I also recommend Professor Russell James's research. Yeah. Do some people, do some folks lower their, their giving after, after, uh, revealing this kind of gift? Sure, they do, but most do not. They feel closer and they increase their giving to that same nonprofit. So yes, another of the insidious myths. Thank you for helping me bust it. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, so, so we make the same when we're teachers. So when we're teaching a client to sort of make sense of how this works, it's the same thing that if, if fundraising is done really well and it's conditioned on meaningful relationships it's the same question that oftentimes gets raises between your quote-unquote annual fund or whatever your annual sort of fundraising efforts are in a capital campaign. And the logic sort of flows the same way, that as that relationship enhances... uh, I I just did a conversation here recently. This was not here on the podcast, but with a group of major gifts officers. And it was the idea of sort of shifting from what uh, we talk about in organizational theory about what's called the structural frame versus the uh the structural frame versus the symbol the symbolic frame and the symbolic frame is sort of asking the question of what is the meaning behind what is sort of going on and when someone's making that decision to leave you in their will by asking the question of what is the meaning there you start to you start to better understand why this works the way that it does differently than you would. If you were looking through the the structural frame is looking at things like a linear process, like you're operating a machine in a factory and, and you can only get one output at a time. And so to, to sort of shift gears requires you to sort of forego, it's a zero sum game sort of thing. Um, the symbolic frame allows you to see that very differently. T- Tony, I've got to ask you this before we, before we sort of wrap this conversation up, one of the things that's different because my professional timeline is just, just a few years shy of yours. Um, and one of the things that when, when we would have been negotiating charitable, uh, when we would have been negotiating planned gifts, you and I at the beginning of our careers, it would have been my grandparents. We would have been oftentimes negotiating those things with. Now we're negotiating those same agreements with my parents' generation, or even my own generation. So we're talking about sort of the difference between sort of negotiating with, uh, you know, someone who came out of the Great Depression or someone who navigated World War II versus the boomers and an older Gen Xer who perhaps looks at the world differently. Is there something that, that, from your vantage point, we need to understand, or are those conversations largely still the same?
2: No, you know, you, you might be talking to younger folks now. Well, you're talking to the next generation as you're describing. Um, no, those those conversations are still about the importance of your work. You know, you they you know, you've mentioned a couple of times negotiating planned gifts. Yeah. That that comes in the more sophisticated gift, um, which can be valuable. I mean, I've I've worked with all of them. I've worked with life insurance, charitable remainder trusts, charitable gift annuities, charitable lead trust, the IRA gift, life insurance, uh, you know, I, I, I can do them all. But the place, you know, for folks that are not doing planned giving, the the place to start your program is with gifts by will. That's why I focused the, the attention of the, the members in Planned Giving Accelerator on that type of gift. So when, you, when you're talking about that type of gift, the conversation is still about The sustainability, the life of your nonprofit, how important that is to your community to continue, that your work continue. So, you know, as you go through different generations, sure, you know, the folks who have memories of the Great Depression are fewer in number than they were 25 years ago when I started in Planned Giving. You know, the the folks that have memories of of World War Two are are fewer in number than they were 25 years ago. Uh, soon, into, you know the the folks who have memories of Vietnam, those veterans will will be much fewer in coming years. So, you know the the experiences of the generations change, but yeah. the plain giving conversations they remain the same. They're about the life of your nonprofit, how important your work is to your community. And why that work must continue. So that's why we're talking to you about a gift in your will so that the work we do can continue for decades
1: and generations. So, who is the organization? Before I let you go, Tony. So, the, the person who's signing up for your program, taking your course, who is that person? Is that person who is that person an executive director who, um, who is that person? I, I worked for, when I think about my, the span of my fundraising career i was in those one person shops i was in i was a manager of a team and i was a gift officer in a very large team so who who is that person that you're most likely and my guess is that all of them can sign up but who is that most likely candidate to show up and um and, te- and before we let you go tell us how they can uh, how they can find out some more information about that
2: yeah the the, the folks who have signed up uh, and, and become members are mostly CEOs, executive directors,
1: okay.
2: uh, fundraisers, and board members. So we've had a good number of board members who, uh, okay. who have joined us. So That's interesting. Those, are the okay. three, those are the three most common types of members. Uh The information is at plannedgivingaccelerator.com. Uh, I think the next class is, is probably going to be early 2023. So if you want to get information about when that begins, so when we start recruiting for that next class, you know, you can contact me at uh, on the contact page at plannedgivingaccelerator.com. Uh we have a white paper there that you can sign up for, unleash the power of Planned Giving at your nonprofit. Uh you can just join the email list and we'll keep you apprised and you'll, you know, in the meantime, you'll get Content from me about planned giving, you know, my thinking, my ideas about planned giving, uh, to that, to that, uh, email list. And then of course, as I said, when we start the promotion for the class early next year, you'll, you'll know about that.
1: Tony, it has certainly been a pleasure. I, uh, I do regret that plan giving hasn't been a topic of conversation. I, you really got me sort of warmed up here. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going, you're always welcome back. And if you'd like to refer anybody else to the show who perhaps like would like to be a part of the plan giving conversation, you can certainly do that as well. Thank you, sir.
2: Jason, thank you very much for hosting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Can I just give a shout out for my own podcast, which you mentioned earlier?
1: Yes, yes. If you'd like to do that. Yes, yes, certainly do that. You were that. a
2: guest. You were a guest
1: three years ago.
2: Uh, it's Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. It's everything I think small and mid-sized shops struggle with. So it's not just planned giving. It's not just fundraising. You know, we talk about board relationships, volunteer management, legal topics, social media, technology. Uh, and, of course, all the fundraising topics as well. Uh, the info for for uh, my podcast, Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, is TonyMartinetti.com.
1: Thank you, Tony. We'll certainly put that in the show notes, and it's uh, certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back.
2: Thank you, Jason. I'd love to. How about the next two weeks?